0: Amen. Jesus paid it all. That is the hope that we have. We do not have any fear of future wrath. We don't have any penalty left to pay. We don't have any debt that is left that we owe. He paid it all. He paid every single aspect of the debt that we owe. He paid it all. Praise God. That's why we sing, Oh, praise the one who paid my debt. Uh, Praise the Lord. If you have your copy of God's word, and I trust that you do, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16. We are going to finish this chapter, Lord willing, this morning. As you're turning there, I don't know if you've ever had a surprise birthday party. I was thinking about this uh, just this last Sunday. It wasn't a surprise to me, although a lot of the things that happened were a surprise to me, but the birthday party as a whole wasn't a surprise to me. And uh, I don't know which one I prefer. I think I really like not having the surprise because you don't really know what to do uh, with that moment, right? Everybody yells, surprise! And I I feel like I'm obligated to go, surprise! Like I have to say surprise too. Um, I remember my wife threw me a surprise birthday party a while ago and it was so much fun and I loved it, so I'm not against it, but I remember walking in and just having that feeling when I opened the door, uh, first of all, I went to like open the door and let her go into the house, it was my mom's house, and I opened the door and, and she goes, no, you go first, and so already something's weird. And as I take a step in, I saw one of my best friends that I hadn't seen in a very long time, and he wasn't supposed to be there because it was just supposed to be my family. And I just was like, what are What are you doing here? And, and then you kind of get this, like, is it a surprise party? Because I don't want to let myself down as I'm overthinking the situation. So right, what are you doing? And, and he has one of those, like, looks where he goes, I was not supposed to be here. I was supposed to be hiding, and we were all supposed to yell. And he just kind of smiled and goes, ah! and then everybody around goes, surprise, and then they're all behind me, and it was amazing, and we had a blast. But you have that that thought. What are you doing here? Why are you here? You're not supposed to be here. And I was thinking about the end of Revelation, as we come to the end of Revelation. And as we think about the return of Christ, I think often we, if we were pressed with the question of why is Jesus here? Why is he coming back? What is he doing here? I think often we would ask, well, he's coming to take us home, and that's it, right? We would just tend to think he's coming back to take us home, to be with him, and the story ends, but I think Revelation 16, I think the end of Revelation 16 actually gives us several reasons why Jesus is going to show up, why he's coming back, the hope that we have in his second coming, and we're not even in the second coming passage. Revelation 19 is the second coming, Revelation 16, remember we talked about these bold judgments, they're going to take us right to the end of when Jesus is going to come back, and you're going to see that this morning. But we're not even to the actual second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, and yet there's a preview here that I don't want us to miss. There's a motivation. If we were to ask the question, what are you doing here? Why did you show up, Jesus? Why are you here at the second coming? I think that this text will give us four very specific reasons why Our Savior is coming back. So let's read this chapter together. Revelation 16, starting in verse 12 and going all the way to the end of the chapter. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew it's called Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. Father, we come to the end of Revelation 16, and, and yet again we see judgment. We've been in the middle of judgment for a long time as we've studied this section of Scripture. And yet, there is still more that we have to learn. There's still more that we are to see This morning, there is still more that is to captivate not only our thinking, but also our feeling, our affections. We should walk out of here different because of our time in your word. So Father, I pray that you would enable us to receive your word for what it is. Not the word of men, not the testimony of man, but the actual written word of God, breathed out by you, our God, You are speaking to us this morning and your sheep will hear your voice. So Father, I pray that you'd be gracious to allow us to see, be gracious to pull the scales back, be gracious to open our ears so that we could hear your voice. Father, as we pray every Lord's day, we ask that you in your grace, kindness, and mercy would allow the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We cannot see what we're supposed to see. We cannot be affected in the way that we're supposed to be affected if not for him. So Holy Spirit, be our helper. Point us to Christ. May we, at the end of our time together this morning, may we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want these things to happen. Show us Christ. And may we forever be changed because of our time here this morning we pray in the name of jesus our savior amen there are four specific reasons given in this text by implication as to what jesus is going to do when he comes back and why he is coming back why he is returning to the earth now you remember if you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 16 At the very beginning in verse 1, a loud voice from the temple, this is God speaking, says to the seven angels, go, remember these are the two commandments, two imperatives, go, which is the present tense, meaning do this right now, get going now, get up and go now, and pour out, that's a completely different command, and it's also in a different voice in the Greek, it's in the aorist tense, which means it should be happening right now, you cannot do this fast enough. In our vernacular, we would say, needs to be done yesterday, right? We need to get this done now. And so these seven bowls are quick, they're successive, they're fast, and this is the end of human history as we know it before Jesus comes back to establish his millennial kingdom. The first five bowls that we saw last week are very reminiscent of Egypt's plagues, except these are global. These are all around the world, not just in Egypt. And here this morning, we're going to see the last two bowls, the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl. And we're going to see four reasons inside of these two bowls for why Jesus is returning to earth. Reason number one, he's coming back to stop the Antichrist. He's going to return to stop the Antichrist. This is verse 12 and verse 16. Verse 12 the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. This, this judgment's different than all the other judgments. We've seen in all the other judgments, these bowl judgments, they're, they're worldwide. Uh, the trumpet judgment's a third of the land, a third of the seas, a third of the rivers. These bowl judgments, 100% of the rivers, 100% of the seas, 100% of the land. And yet, this bowl is different. It's like that old Sesame Street game. One of these things is not like the others, right? This bowl Judgment is different. What's different? Why is this even a judgment? What, what do we need to know about the Euphrates? Uh, you know that that was a very, very important river in the Middle East, still is even to this day, and it will be on into the future. The very first mention of the Euphrates River in the Bible is Genesis two fourteen, and this mention here in Revelation 16 is the last mention of this river. This is where this river is going to dry up. It says the Euphrates, uh, the bowl is poured out on the Euphrates, and its water was dried up. The question is, why is there water still in the Euphrates? Because you remember, all of the waters in the rivers were turned to blood. So either it could be saying, just using the term water for whatever's inside the river, so it's just a big river of blood, or it might be saying that as that fourth bowl was poured out uh, on the sun, and it scorches all of the uh, polar ice caps and the, and the ice caps that were on Mount Ararat. Maybe the water from Mount Ararat as it's melting is coming down and flowing into the Euphrates River. And so it's diluting the blood and maybe that's happening. The bottom line is this is a bloodied river that's overflowing the banks, that's getting higher, that's raising in its density, and its thickness, also in its volume. And right as this bloody river is growing and growing and growing, God's going to say, dry up. Now, my question is, why is that a judgment? How is that judgment? And the answer is, because God is allowing the battle of Armageddon to happen. This judgment allows the battle of Armageddon to take place. Because of the seal judgments and because of the trumpet judgments, rivers were way, way harder to cross, right? They're much harder to cross for the people during this time period. And yet God wants the people to cross this river. The Euphrates River runs from the mountains of Turkey to the Mediterranean Sea, and then as it goes around the Mediterranean, or goes near it, it cuts down, dividing Syria, dividing uh, Iraq in half. It kind of looks like a, a little parentheses so you can see what John sees here. The Euphrates is going to be dried up, and he explicitly tells us why. So that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east to cross. They were not able to cross. They would have to go way, way far around in order to be able to make their way over to Israel if the Euphrates River is completely flooded. And so what God's going to do is he's going to dry that river up so that everyone from the east can cross on dry land very, very easily. It can go across. This little parenthesis that was really uh, kind of dividing the the territory and making it impossible for people to get across into Israel, God's going to dry it up so that they have free and easy access to get into Israel. To attack from Asia, if you're going to attack Israel from Asia, you have to cross this river. That's literally what it says in the Greek, uh, would be prepared for the kings from the east, or literally the kings from the rising of the sun, from where the sun rises, so God's going to dry this river up so that they could come over to where? Verse 16, to gather together in a place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Har just means uh, mountain or mount, and Megiddon is the word for Megiddo. And Megiddo is just a place about 60 miles north of Jerusalem in Israel. It's a valley, and so the mountains surrounding, you have Mount Carmel to the far north, uh, you have other mountains surrounding it, but it's a big valley. Napoleon actually said that uh, it was the best place on earth for a battle to take place. He, he loved this valley, this valley of Megiddo and the mountains surrounding it, the mountain range surrounding it. Over 200 battles have been fought in this location. We see a couple even in the Bible, Judges chapter 4 with Deborah and Barak, Judges chapter 7 with Gideon. That's all happening in that valley. So when you hear the word Armageddon, That's just a transliteration. That's saying uh, a Hebrew word um, that you're actually just sounding out phonetically with English sounds. Har-Mageddon is actually two Hebrew words. Har-Mountain-Megiddo. Mountains of Megiddo. Mount of Megiddo. So this is the battle of Har-Megiddo. This is the the battle uh, with the mountains surrounding, with the mountain range that surrounds the Valley of Megiddo. So... What is God doing? God is luring and allowing and bringing the people, the kings from the east, to join the Antichrist in Israel to fight against God's people. This is the battle of Armageddon. This is the most talked about war in the Bible. Daniel chapter 11, Zechariah 11 through 13, uh, the, almost the entire book of Obadiah, just to save a couple little verses. Ezekiel 38, this is the Gog and Magog battle. This is all over the Bible, Revelation 12, 18, 19, 20. We're going to see this in a number of locations. This is the most talked about battle in the entire Bible. The Antichrist, if you remember, just a summary, comes to power at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. At the beginning of that seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to come to power with a promise of peace. He's going to break it. He's going to go to war. He's going to go to war against the North, This is Ezekiel 38 and Zechariah 11. Uh, He's going to go to the north and to the east, the modern-day Stan countries and nations. He's going to retreat and go back through Israel, down southwest to Africa, through Egypt and Syria and Ethiopia. And then he's going to circle back around, go to Egypt, stay in in Israel. He's going to go through Egypt, stay in Israel, try to fight against the Jewish people. This was Revelation chapter 12. The Jews are going to flee. They're going to find a place where they can hide. Many will. Uh, The majority, though, will be... Slaughtered by the Antichrist, along with all the believers that are going to be there too. And so the Antichrist is sitting and waiting in Jerusalem. We read that earlier last week in Revelation 16 the throne of the Antichrist in Jerusalem. He's waiting there and he's wanting to attack everyone from Jerusalem. And so we're going to have all of these nations that surround him that are going to gather with him to fight against God and against his people. That's the battle of Armageddon. And the battle of Armageddon, everyone's bad. There isn't even just one main bad team. There's all these little bad people that just join together and try to fight against God and against his people. And 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, Paul tells us the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end, bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. So he's coming back to bring an end to the Antichrist. He's coming to stop the Antichrist. Enough is enough, God says. Your reign is over. Secondly, Jesus is coming back not only to stop the Antichrist, he's coming back to silence the devil. Jesus is coming back to silence the devil. This is back in verses 13 and verse 14. The eastern armies are going to have to cross the Euphrates River. They're not going to be able to do so because of the previous bulls turned the river into blood and overflowed its banks. And similar to the Egyptians, you remember when the Egyptians were waiting at the banks of the Red Sea? They're trying to pass. They're trying to go in and destroy all of Israel as they're passing through the Red Sea. Remember, God makes that cloud, that pillar of cloud, go in front of them so that they can't see. So Pharaoh says, wait, wait, wait. And then when that cloud dissipates, that's when Pharaoh says, look, the The sea's been parted. We can cross on dry land. They're walking. We have chariots and horses. This is a slaughter. We're going to kill them. So it looked like the the rolling back of that cloud, it looked like that was a, a kind gesture on the part of the gods to bring about victory on Egypt's behalf. Instead, it was a gesture of judgment. God says, go, try and attack them, and my people will leave, and the Red Sea will destroy all of the Egyptians. That's the exact same thing that's happening here as the armies from the east are trying to figure out, how do we get in? How do we go join the Antichrist in his fight? How do we fight against God and his people? They can't because of the Euphrates River. And as they're looking at the Euphrates River, wondering, how do we get across? God's going to dry it up, and they're going to say, we can cross. (laughs) Look at this. What wondrous luck, what favor smiles upon us. Do they know that they're walking into a trap? No, they don't. And the reason why they don't is because of verses 13 and 14 coming out of the mouth of the dragon, remember that's the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of that second beast, that's the false prophet. Remember we talked about this unholy trinity working together, the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Out of their mouths is deception, demonic influences coming from these three individuals such that they're luring the kings from the east to gather together in this valley of Armageddon, this valley uh, surrounding the north of Jerusalem. This demonic trinity has these frog-like unclean spirits coming out of their mouths, out of the mouth of the false prophet, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the dragon. Three unclean spirits like frogs because they're spirits of demons. So like frogs, remember that word like is really important. It's not that they're actually spitting up frogs. It's the exact same phrase that was used back in earlier chapters, like locusts, right? They look like locusts. The demons look and act like locusts, whether it's the massive armies of demons, whether it's the way that they sound, whether it's what they do in bringing absolute carnage to the land. Same thing here. It doesn't have to be actual literal frogs. In fact, I think the word like probably tells us that it's not. So what is John saying? Why is he using this analogy of frogs? Well, number one... It's reminding us yet again of the plagues in Egypt. The frogs were the second of the ten plagues in Egypt. And it's reminding us, you remember, the the magicians in Egypt were trying to counter all that God was doing to say, this isn't God, and our gods are more powerful. I think that's happening here. They're performing signs. Verse 14, they're performing signs. They're, They're trying to perform these signs to say, yes, God's doing signs, and you know that he's doing signs, but we can do signs too. I think that's reason number one why they're called frogs. Reason number two is frogs are unclean animals. So this is uncleanliness coming out of these three individuals. There's no beauty in them. There's no glory in them. Thirdly, just think about what a frog does. Frogs give loud, frequent croaks, and they're decently meaningless, right? You just have to kind of tune it out. And so there's an imagery here of something making a terrible sound, maybe even a a a sound that you can't fully understand. Just like we would say today in our common vernacular, we'd say someone has a frog in their throat, right? Because they're speaking and it's off. There's something weird about it. That's what's happening here. So these three individuals are speaking and it's unclean and it's trying to counterfeit things that God has done. And it's trying to lure and bring in all the kings from the east. You can see in verse 14, it's going to go out to the kings of the whole world To gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. The great day of God the Almighty. There's a phrase that's used all over the Old Testament, and then it's used again in the New Testament. We'll look at it even today. It's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, you have to understand that it's used in two specific ways in the Bible. It's used to speak generally and broadly of the end of human history when God's going to bring judgment to evil and blessing to his people. And so the day of the Lord, in a broad sense, we would say from the Old Testament and the New, we're going to look at a couple passages today, the time period of the day of the Lord, which includes judgment and blessing, includes the beginning of Daniel's 70th week all the way to the end of the Millennial Kingdom. That's the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, a day where God judges his adversaries and brings peace and blessing to his people. But there's also a very narrow and specific use of the term day of the Lord. And often you'll see it in the Bible, the great and awesome day of the Lord, the great and powerful day of the Lord, the great and awful, awesome day of the Lord. That's the word here, the great day of God, the almighty, the great day of the Lord. The, the narrow sense of the day of the Lord, the broad sense is the very beginning of the seven year period, all the way through the millennial kingdom to the very end when the eternal state is going to be brought in. The narrow sense is this judgment. It's these bowls that are just poured out on the earth. And the finality of the battle of Armageddon, that is the narrow definition of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So the great and awesome day of the Lord is probably just all of those seven bowl judgments All the way up until that very end of the Battle of Armageddon, the ushering of the Millennial Kingdom. That is, in the Old Testament, when you see great and awesome day of the Lord, it's probably referring to that specific period of time. But when you see day of the Lord, and normally you see just day of the Lord way more often in the Bible than great and awesome day of the Lord, it's speaking broadly of that whole time period, from the beginning of Daniel's 70th week to the end of the Millennial Kingdom. So here it's speaking narrowly, specifically. This is the end. Of the judgments of God, the bringing together of the armies, the battle of Armageddon, the destruction of the Antichrist, and the silencing of the devil. If Jesus doesn't come back, the devil keeps doing exactly what he's doing here in this text. He keeps on speaking with a voice like that of a frog, deceiving, meaningless croaks that people follow. But if Jesus shows up, he's going to silence the devil. Number three. Jesus is going to come back to earth to stimulate holiness. His return is designed to stimulate holiness. This is verse 15. This is a parenthetical statement. You can see it even in your translations here. There's a parenthesis because there's a brief interlude. In the midst of all this chaos, there's an assurance that believers are not forgotten. God is pouring out judgment on his adversaries, and there's assurance that believers are not forgotten in any of this. There were similar encouragements in the midst of the judgments during the seals, chapter 7, verse 1 through 17. There was also similar encouragement during the trumpet judgments, chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11, verse 14. But because the bowl judgments happen so quickly, this encouragement is one sentence. It's very brief. It's a little parenthetical statement, and then back to the judgments. And it brings about the third of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation, where it says, blessed is the one who stays awake. Stay awake. Why? Why are you blessed if you stay awake? Well, because Jesus is coming back like a thief. How does a thief show up to your house? Unannounced? Doesn't ring the doorbell? You don't plan for him coming? You don't expect the coming of the thief? If you anticipated it, you would change the way that you live your life. You would change what you are doing but nobody knows when the thief is coming or else they would have prepared. I think maybe in our day, if, revel- if Revelation were written in our day, it might read, Jesus is coming back like the Amazon delivery man. You have no idea when that guy's showing up, right? It even gives you a window between like four and eight. And it never happens that he comes in that period of time. You just never know. And you're waiting and you're wondering and you're hoping, but it never happens. What's the point of this parenthetical statement? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back like a thief. You don't know when it's going to be, but you need to prepare for it. Live your life with your eyes open. Live with eternity in your mind. This is really what we're supposed to do as believers with all of these ju- judgments. These bold judgments, we're supposed to look at them and live out this parenthetical statement. Romans chapter 13, verse 12, Paul writes, The night is almost gone, the day is near, Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's a time coming when this will all be over, and we need to be ready. We need to be prepared for it. 1 John 2, verse 28, John writes, just as he's written in Revelation, he writes 1 John, and he says, Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, not if, but when he is coming back, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. The second coming of Christ stimulates holiness. It motivates our desire for holy living. This is why Jonathan Edwards in one of his resolutions says, I'm resolved to live how I want to be living if it's the hour of Christ's return. I want to be living, thinking, doing exactly what I want to be doing if Jesus were coming back right now. Because he could. We don't know. We don't know when he's coming back. And if you decide to not care, if it doesn't stimulate you to holiness and motivate you to godly living, then you won't be blessed. You won't live out what he says here in verse 15. Blessed is the one who stays awake, stays alert, and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. This is an example of, uh, taken from Roman practice back, back in the New Testament. If you fell asleep, if you were in the army and you fell asleep while you were on your post, you could be executed, but usually they would just want to shame you, right? You're exhausted, you fell asleep, you weren't supposed to fall asleep, but they would just put you to shame. They would do something where everyone would know you failed in your job. So instead of killing them, they would take all their clothes and send them back home. So if you ever saw somebody walking naked in the middle of the road, you knew that's a soldier that messed up. And so not only is it just shameful that they're walking naked, but secondly, they messed up. They blew it. They lost their post. They they fell asleep on the job. They're just, they're a loser. And you're you're watching them walk by, and you know they've messed up. That's the example that's being used here. Stay awake. Stay alert. Don't fall asleep at your post. Your general is coming back. He's coming to see you. Don't fall asleep. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Jesus says the same thing. Be on the alert, because you do not know which day the Lord is coming. And Jesus connects the evil of this world to the fact that they don't believe the Master's coming back. We live out our sin because we just don't believe he's coming back soon. I've even talked with students before who say, I believe Jesus, I believe he's the only way to be saved, and I will repent down the road. I'll follow him down the road. I want to enjoy my sin now, and then I'll turn to Christ later. That's unwise for a number of reasons. We've talked about this before. You don't know if you're going to die today, and you also don't know when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus might come back today. And so if you're saying, I'm not going to repent because I'm going to repent down the road, I want to enjoy my sin now, Jesus might come back now. And if he does, you are going to be stuck in your evil, and you're going to be ashamed at his second coming because you are not walking in godly living, in godly holiness. A third, another reason why it's just foolish to determine that you're going to repent later and enjoy your sin now is the more you enjoy your sin, the harder your heart will get to the beauty and the loveliness of Christ. That's why Jesus says, be alert. Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The end times, the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. So it's not just Jesus' second coming, but it's also the coming of the rapture when Jesus is going to come back to call us home. The beginning of the entirety of this period at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. The day of the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says the same thing. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. It's happening. It's going to happen. We just don't know when. So Jesus is coming back to stop the Antichrist, to silence the devil, and to stimulate holy living, to motivate holiness. Finally, number four, Jesus is coming back to slaughter evil. He's coming back to slaughter evil. This is verses 17 all the way through the end of the chapter. The seventh angel pours out his bowl on the air. So we have everybody gathering together in the land of Israel, Armies gathering together in the valley of Megiddo and on the mounts uh, surrounding Megiddo. And then the seventh angel pours out his bowl upon the air, so the atmosphere around earth, everything included. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. This is the bad version of it is finished. When Jesus cried out, It is finished, it's been paid in full. You don't have anything left to do. When Jesus cried out those words on the cross... He says, you're free. Your debt's been paid. When God the Father cries out, it is done in verse 17. He says, you are going to pay it all. You're going to pay it all. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake it was and so mighty. When you hear the word earthquake, don't think of 1994 in Northridge. This is something that we have never tasted before. When you think of the big one, this is bigger than the big one. This is something that the world's never known. This is God undoing creation. He's going to reclaim the world by just obliterating it, undoing it all. We know biblically that this earthquake will culminate in Jesus returning, splitting the Mount of Olives with his feet, splits them in two, a new valley will run east to west, forming an, uh, a spring of water that will flow year-round from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea, causing the desert to bloom like roses. This is Zechariah 14, verse 10, and Isaiah 35, verse 1. So these are the earthquakes that are taking place, and then Jesus is going to come back and split the Mount of Olives with another earthquake. You can see in verse 19 that this earthquake is specifically poured out, this judgment specifically poured out on evil. The great city where the beast's throne is was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon, which we've talked briefly about, that's just the culture of the worldly system in that time period, that's the Antichrist's kingdom, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of His fierce wrath. And if you ask, why does Babylon deserve the cup of the wine of God's fierce wrath? Why is she going to drink that? John anticipates that. God anticipates that question. And that's why chapter 17 and 18 deal with Babylon. They tell us all about the Antichrist's kingdom and culture and why it's worthy of the judgment that they're receiving. So we'll see that next week. Every island, verse 20, flees away. Mountains were not found. Again, God's undoing creation. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds. Uh, Literally, in Greek, it's the weight of a talent, which the weight of a talent is between 90 to 130 pounds. So NASB says somewhere right in the middle, about 100 pounds. Hailstones, about 100 pounds come down from heaven. Again, just like the darkness uh, as a common judgment that God has used, the hailstones are also a common judgment that God has used but this is unlike anything. These hailstones are so massive. Just to give a perspective, the second heaviest hailstone on documented record in the United States was found in 1970 in Kansas, weighing a whopping one pound, .67. Not even two full pounds. The heaviest hailstone documented in the United States was in June of 2003 in Nebraska. 1.93 pounds, so still we haven't quite made it to two. The heaviest in the world was found in Bangladesh in April of 1986, weighing in at 2.25 pounds. So two and a quarter. And I don't know. If you're if you're hearing these, I don't know how they record these things. I don't know how this is done. Because if you think about a hailstone, immediately as it lands on Earth, it's probably breaking up and it's probably melting, so I don't know how these people are figuring this out. Like, as soon as one lands, they just run out and measure it, weigh it, okay, and then they go to another one, I don't know. Suffice it to say, maybe the heaviest one, let's just say the heaviest one before melting and breaking up is three pounds. These hailstones are right around 100 pounds. This is massive. This is causing destruction and death unlike anything we could possibly comprehend when it comes to hailstones. And notice yet again how this chapter ends. What do the people on earth do? As hail is raining down on them from the skies in ways that they've never experienced before, they blaspheme God because of the plague of hail. Because it was so severe. They still don't Repent. They would rather be destroyed by hailstones than turn to Christ. This shows us yet again just the lunacy of our sin. These bold judgments are the expression of the will of God. They're the manifestation of the character of God against sin and his holiness. And they're the consequences of settled human sinfulness. Anyone at that time could say, I'm done. I want to repent. But nobody wants to repent, and therefore no one does. No one's saved of those who are following the Antichrist. So, what are we to do with chapter 16? What are we to do with these four reasons why Jesus is coming back? He's coming back to stop the Antichrist. He's coming back to silence the devil. He's coming back to stimulate and motivate our holy living. And he's coming back to slaughter all of evil, to do away with every ounce of evil. What are we supposed to do with this? Five points of application as we draw our time to a close number one no human sovereign can successfully rival god no human sovereign can successfully rival god the antichrist is going to try but he will not be successful he's going to get all of the armies of the world to gather with him but they will not be successful The issue with the Battle of Armageddon is not primarily when it occurs or even where it occurs, but that it will occur and why it will occur. It occurs at God's invitation. It occurs with God saying, Let me dry up the river, let me make a way for you to come over here, and if you choose to not repent, then I will bring justice. This also shows us, just again, the lunacy of sin. Think of this army. These, these armies that gathered together in the land of Israel are not amazing by any stretch of the imagination. When you think Battle of Armageddon, you probably think some massive, like, marvel-scale war that's going on. This group of people is just a ragtag band of almost completely destroyed people. They've already been decimated by all of the judgments that have preceded them. It's just really like zombies walking around carrying torches because of the darkness, gnawing on their tongues because of the pain, scratching at oozing sores and blisters. Again, look at the utter foolishness on display. They still think we can beat God, we can beat him. As we say often at our church, sin makes you stupid. These men should have stopped, looked around and said, hey, who did this to all of us? Look at all of us. Do you expect that we in our frailty are going to fight God? Let's actually go to God and say, please forgive us. Please restore us to health and to spiritual vitality. Please give us life. How would we ever expect to beat the one who's doing all this to us? We can't even see him. How are we to expect to beat him? It's not even a fight when it comes to Armageddon. Yes, there's a battle, but it's just a slaughter. No human can rival God in a successful fashion. No king can destroy God. Application number two, Satan will never have the final word. Satan will never have the final word. I love this. His influence is pervasive, but it will be stopped. His abilities are massive, but they will come to an end. Satan will not have the final word. Our God will, and he will shut the mouth of Satan, and his lies will end. His demonic influence will end. It will be stopped. Now, if you've read ahead in Revelation, you know that Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years. He's going to come back. He's going to do this one more time to try and influence the world, and it's going to be uh, quickly destroyed. The rebellion's going to be shot down very quickly. But here, Jesus is coming back to silence our enemy. Number three, obedience and faithfulness is better by far than what sin offers. Obedience and faithfulness is better by far than what sin offers. That's why there's that parenthetical statement. Stay alert because the alternative is death. The alternative is shame. The alternative is guilt. Do you want to be on their side being destroyed by God or do you want to be on God's side wearing the righteousness of Christ? Those are the clothes you want. You want to walk around in your own nakedness and shame because of your guilt? Obedience and faithfulness is better. And just, again, think. Think and reason in chapter 16 just how foolish sin makes you. Look at the irony of sin. Remember, everybody who is getting these judgments poured out on them, they, they're getting them because they took the mark of the beast. Go back to chapter 16, verse 2. The first angel pours out the bull on the earth, and it becomes a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Why did they take the mark of the beast? They took it because if you don't have that mark, you can't do commerce. You can't be a part of the economy. You can't buy and sell and trade, and you're going to die. So they took the mark in order to live a nice, enjoyable life, and what did they get? They're so incapacitated now by these malignant sores, and by all the judgments going on, they can't buy and sell, they're unable to do anything. This is, in a microcosm, the promise of sin. Sin says, here, take this, and life will go well for you. And you take it, and everything that you thought was gonna happen is the exact opposite. You get judgment, You get loss, you get guilt and shame. And instead of chewing on their sins and figuring out how do we repent, they just chew on their tongues and blaspheme God. My friends, obedience and faithfulness are better by far than whatever sin's offering you today. Be alert, stay alert. Wear the righteousness of Christ and let his second coming motivate your holiness. Number four, evil will be destroyed. Evil will be destroyed. Turn back to the book of Psalms. Turn back to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 94. In this psalm, the psalmist has been saying, okay, God, where are you? Please avenge your people. The wicked are prospering. Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you stopping things? Help us. And you get to the very, very end. Psalm 94, verse 23. Starting in verse 22, the Lord has been my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them, and he will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. God will destroy evil. That tells us we don't have to worry about that. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. We don't have to fight against it how are we to deal as believers in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of, a, of an evil world, how are we to deal with it the way that Christ deals with it? I love the way that uh, a Croatian Christian by the name of Miroslav Volf, uh, he was suffering greatly at the hands of Serbian aggressors. He was persecuted for his faith. He was imprisoned. And he said this, the presupposition of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. The presupposition that God is going to judge at the end of history means I can renounce trying to judge in the middle of it. I don't need to worry about judging because God will. God will in perfection. This changes, do you realize how the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 16, changes our interpersonal relationships. God's going to judge evil. So if somebody has caused you evil, if somebody has hurt you, if somebody has maligned you, if somebody has done something that's evil against you, you can leave the punishment of that evil to God because either it will be punished at the cross just like your sin, or they will be punished forever in hell. You don't have to worry about judging people. Therefore, bitterness for believers is an oxymoron. Believers cannot be bitter people. Because that would be harboring the evil that people have done against us and stewing on it and meditating on it when our Savior himself has taken the punishment and done away with it. God's not remembering it. We shouldn't remember it either. Because God is our judge. We don't have to be the judge. This tells us that God does not think lightly about sin. Look at the cross. He slaughtered his son on the cross because of our sin. It's very interesting, the fourth point of why Jesus is coming back. He's coming back to slaughter evil, to destroy all of evil. But it's really ironic when you talk to somebody who is not a Christian, one of the reasons why they will give you as to why they're not a Christian is because there's so much evil and suffering in the world. If there is a God, and he's all powerful, and he's all loving, then why is he allowing suffering? Why is he allowing evil? Why doesn't he stop it? There's a lot of answers to that question but one answer, there's a lot. I mean, you can give them dozens of answers to that question biblically, but one answer to that question is, he's going to. He's going to stop it. In fact, he did in the Bible, which is really ironic because some of the places that people turn to who do not believe the Bible, who do not like God, some of the places that they turn to, like Noah and the flood, they go, well, that's kind of mean. Well, you just asked for evil to be destroyed. That's how God destroyed evil. You can't have both. If you're saying there's a problem to believe in God because evil exists and God's not doing anything about it, then when you say God's doing something about it, you can't cry foul uh, the way that he's destroying evil. So what are we supposed to do with it? Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. If we know that God will destroy evil, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, we know that this day is coming. We know that God will destroy evil. We know that this day is going to happen. Judgment's coming. So verse 7 Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, God again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. If you're hearing his voice this morning, don't harden your hearts. Let the word of God soften your heart and receive the grace of Jesus Christ where your judgment was poured out on him so that you wouldn't have to be judged. Finally, number five. How are we to wrap up chapter 16? A chapter filled with judgment after judgment after judgment. Turn back there to chapter 16. How are we to wrap up this chapter? I would say this, number five. Glory in the cross. Glory in the cross. Go to verse 19. The great city, Jerusalem, was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God. I don't ever want God to remember my sins. And at this time, in Revelation 16, God's going to take Babylon and God's going to say, I'm going to remember every single sin you've ever committed and because you have denied Christ because you have rejected a way that has been made for you to be forgiven because you have rejected that you will give an account and be punished be punished for all of the sins you committed and God never forgets and he keeps a perfect record of everything you've ever done i read verse 19 and it terrifies me i can't even remember all the sins i've committed but i know the ones that i have committed And sometimes they make me sick to my stomach. Sometimes I think about my life and I think, I I don't want to remember that. I hope I never remember those things. I just, can we move past it? Can we not dwell on it? Can we not think about it? If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you don't love him, if you don't submit to him, he says, I'm not gonna forget that sin. I will always remember it and I'll bring it up on judgment day. But my friends, if you know Jesus Christ, If you love Jesus Christ, if you follow him, if you plead for mercy, if you know he is your soul's satisfaction, then you have a promise attached to that list of sins that you say, I wish I could never remember that. I don't ever want to to remember it. I always want to forget it. You have a promise from God himself. Isaiah 43, verse 25. Isaiah 43, 25. God says, I will remember your sins No more. He says here in Revelation 16, I'm going to remember every sin Babylon ever committed and I'm going to punish them. But he says, for you and for me, if you know Jesus Christ, if you love Jesus, he says, I have no record of you doing anything wrong. It's not that God forgets. He's omniscient. He can't forget. He chooses never to bring it up. So if you say, God, do you remember Do you remember what I did? Do you remember that list of sin? God says, I have no record of you ever sinning. In fact, Not just I have no record of you never sinning, I have only a record of you always perfectly obeying. That's what God sees when he looks at you and me. And so as we end Revelation 16, we glory in the cross because all of these judgments are ours, deservedly, rightfully. We merit every single judgment. We deserve to drink that cup of the wine of the fierce wrath of God, but Jesus Christ, in his kindness... He said, I'll take that cup and I'll drink it to the dregs so that you and I can drink the cup of redemption, of the new covenant, of peace and of grace. And we can cling to Jesus and say, I needed you back then, I need you now, I need you forevermore. And I love you. Let's pray. Father, these verses are staggering. You, an omniscient God, have promised that you will never forget the sins of Babylon, the sins of those who had war against you. You're not going to forget. You'll remember them. You'll call them back to memory, and you will bring them before Babylon, each and every sin, and they will give an account and just feel guilt and shame and disgust, and then they'll pay for every sin. Father, I pray for any in this room who might know who you are, might know about you, might know that you are the only way to be saved, but they have not relinquished control of their life to you. They do not bow the knee to you. They do not trust in you. They do not plead for mercy. They think maybe I can be a good person. I'll live a moral life to try and please you. God, I pray today they would see there's no possibility of being saved by their works. All their works are filthy rags before you, even the best of them. But because of Jesus, we have someone who has pleaded our case on our behalf. He is our only defense. He is our only righteousness. We have no hope in and of ourselves. And so we cry out, God, I need you. God, bring salvation to people in this room who are not saved, who have not pleaded with you to be saved, to be treated with mercy and grace. And for those who have, God, don't let us remain unaffected. By the promise that you've given, you will remember our sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, you've removed them. You're never going to bring them back up. So may we glory in the cross. May we glory in Christ. And may we declare our dependency and our need on you in desperation this morning. Our one defense, our only righteousness. We love you and we need you.